available a documentary in progress for the week of September 2nd, 2018. The practice of living and observing becomes less difficult, yet more entangled, as time goes by in life. And so in this story, the indelible story, as it draws closer to its inevitable conclusion, the same holds true. Over the past month, the entanglements have become more bizarre and more intense. And not only from the history or the perspective of the subjects, the former kids as I call them, but now the intensity has heated up and become more intense from the side of those in our society who see themselves as the law enforcers, but who it seems are frequently the manufacturers of crimes and the masters of the cover-up. From my perspective as the artist, the researcher and the writer of this history, as well as this story, the tension between these groups is palpable. And I am not free of the tension. I am embedded within it. And I can say with complete frankness, like the protagonist in Kafka's novel, The Trial, there is no out for me, just as there seems to be no out for any of those involved in this history. There could have been an out at some point, but that escape would have required a blunting of perception. And I would suggest that there is no artist who knows how to do this. I didn't, and I don't think I should have, because it would have prematurely cut off my authentic life's path and caused me to become a sleepwalker. For anyone who has found themselves in close proximity with information or as a witness to a story that those in positions of power wish to keep under wraps, you know the daily tension that exists between your life experience and that of those who wish to control the story by controlling others' perceptions of you. And that may mean they take over many facets of your life, but you cannot deny you start to become familiar with their characteristics and practices. And the people referred to as quote-unquote them is not a small group in these circumstances, as they tend to expand over time as budgets expand in government. This is just a fact, but they exist. And they have certain behaviors, and you encounter them in fairly predictable ways. None of them pleasant, but that is always their point. But at the same time, your life continues on until it ends. They do not stop you from living your life, unless they do. But it is my observation that continuation of living your life is your choice in all cases. 
The indelible story is filled with what Gordon White often refers to as, quote-unquote, high strangeness. And as an artist, I fully embrace this quality. And I have been trying for a few years now to grapple with this aspect and to figure out how to mold it into some form that makes sense, yet does not cause it to lose this quality. Because it is this quality that gives it life, at least for me, the one in the exhibition party, like Scott in the Antarctic, encountering the landscape of a history. At the same time, there is a brutal Arctic wind that flows through it, a wind carrying the facts of life and death, pain and suffering of human beings, both living and dead. And when I step forward into this wind, I take it very seriously as I understand the momentousness of such an encounter, especially when it involves the lives of others. There is a kind of callousness that seems to be part of artists or those in the military and law enforcement as they build their case or construct their work. This can only be called a kind of blindness. Artists tend to want to self-correct when they become aware of of this in their work. But in the building of a criminal case or justifying a war, there does not seem to be this same kind of self-reflection. And maybe this is where we diverge and develop into different types of characters. A few podcasts ago, I described a diversion I felt I had encountered when researching L, the man who played an important part in DeFer's life. He was the man who had been in DVI with him in his late teens and then came to rescue him during a failed jailbreak in Seattle in 1979. I felt the diversion was a story that L had once been part of a scheme to break Manson out of prison through the hijacking of a plane. L had been part of the Manson family, true, before he met Defer. When I read about the hijacking, it seemed so bizarre. I could not believe it. At that time, I made a tacit attempt to check the facts. And I found nothing, so chalked it up to encountering a diversion. Well, apparently, I was too hasty in this assumption. L was arrested with a group of people from the Manson family. The case is referred to as the Hawthorne robberies, and part of the plan for that effort was to use the money to hijack a plane and shoot passengers one at a time until Manson was released. Again, this was before L. met Defer. So I did find the documents in the court case that described this, so... um, and confirmed dates um, of L's time in prison and what it was for. So I did and was able to confirm that this actually did happen. As hard as it was for me to believe it, it really was hard to believe. L had arrived at the Manson family on the Spawn Ranch in 1969. He was allegedly 16 years old, although I have questions about his age. 
Like many people in the Manson family story, his father was a career military with high with a high ranking. And the newspaper articles and court cases described him as a homeless kid. But it's hard for me to see him as a homeless kid given his family background. Elle was also present during the killing of a man named Shorty Shea, who was a ranch hand at the Manson, it's not the Manson, at the Spawn Ranch where the Manson family was living in 1969. And Shorty Shea was killed by a group from the Manson family on the ranch. It was said that he was, that Elle was just an observer. But we will see this over and over again that he is always present always an observer in a number of killings. That information about Elle being uh, part of the Shorty Shea murder, being present during the murder, didn't come out until the 1980s when one of the Manson family members um, mentioned it during his parole hearing, which ended up causing him to not get parole because um, the prosecutor was so angry that he had withheld that information. So I just thought I would bring that up. That's how that I came to that information. Elle landed in DVI, where he met Dufer in, in April 1973 because of the Hawthorne robberies. Dufer had entered DVI in 1972 after committing his first crime while in the throes of his paramilitary training by the former, question mark, Special Forces personnel. Defer escaped twice from DVI, once to Oregon in 1974 for a couple weeks, and then again in 1977, and I've now confirmed all of these facts. He was living in Washington State when he was contacted by L and asked to come down to train people at the Wellspring Communion in March 1978. L had been released from DVI in February 1978, but was still on parole at this time. Defer arrived from Washington via bus in California. You have to remember that Defer was taking a great risk by coming back to the state where he was a fugitive, and he did this at the bequest of L. A year later, Dufer was married to Marie, that woman that he met, who was at the bus stop with L. So a year later, Dufer was married to Marie and had been living at the ranch for the Wellspring Communion, which was located near Honeydew, California, in Humboldt County. It was here where he was brought to help with, para- with paramilitary training. And I wanted to mention one more thing about this, and that um, I've often referred to this as tribal thumb, and I have um, talked more to Artie about that and also um, did some more research. So tribal thumb was an organization that um, was similar to an organization called the CO in the Midwest, and tribal thumb was began by a man named Earl Satcher, who had been in San Quentin, and he was involved in 
financing the purchase of the ranch in in Humboldt County. But in 1977, he was murdered. Um, he his group, Tribal Thumb Group, um, had tried to um, take over the food co-op in the Bay Area, which. Um, there were, as I've mentioned before, there were these wars going on. The co-ops were making it less expensive for people to get good quality food, and um, there was money to be made. And so these groups were developed, were created, Tribal Thumb and this other one, both with the same kind of sort of almost a cult-like quality to them. Both seemed to be artificially created, with somebody who had been a former inmate as their head um, in both cases, and both using violence. Artie has said many times that he was not part of Tribal Thumb, although we used to kind of talk about it as being the same as Wellspring Communion, which had a restaurant in San Francisco, which he was part of, and Marie was part of that. But they both lived, Marie and Artie, uh, lived in Humboldt at at the ranch, which I refer to as Tribal Thumb. So there's a ranch, again, in Humboldt County, and um, it was purchased by Earl Satcher. By the time Artie arrived there, Earl Satcher was deceased. And I have spoken to um, a prosecutor who was involved in the prosecution of a couple people that were involved with the Wellspring Communion, and he knew about He's a prosecutor for Humboldt County, so he knew a lot about Tribal Thumb. But he also, you know, he has his perspective. Um, So, uh, and some of the things he said, I couldn't confirm with Artie, so there's still a lot of question marks related to that. So there's a bit of a logjam in terms of information related to um, defining tribal thumb and wellspring communion and I don't I think that's probably for a reason so I just wanted to clarify that a little bit so anyway in 1979 Dufer was back down in California at the ranch and at the bequest of of L and he was uh, married to Marie he married Marie out of state so he didn't marry her in California and then they, Marie and Artie, traveled to Canada a few weeks later after they were married. So they went to Canada, and then they crossed the border from Canada back into the U.S. when the shooting of Ward occurred. And again, they crossed the border back into the U.S. without luggage. And I had that from quite a few numbers of sources now. So I'm going to I'm going to stick to that that version of it. I had a problem believing this story about L and his crime partners from the Manson family truly planning a hijacking as a means to free Manson, in part because there were other infamous hijackings during that time, such as the nineteen seventy nine Iran hostage hijacking during the Carter administration. That hijacking had a similar tone, but it occurred six years after a very pub after the very public 
Hawthorne convictions, so the convictions with L and the Manson family members. Is this merely a coincidence? Are criminal ideas shared across cultures? Or do those in law enforcement or the military carry the seeds of ideas of these crimes from place to place? Do they recycle them? Is it a cultural occurrence or a military plan? One detail about Manson did come out during this research. As most know, Manson had been incarcerated his entire life since he was 10 years old. He was also from poverty, but for some reason, he was released in the Bay Area from prison in California in late 1967. Prior to his release, he had a secret meeting. It also appears he too was likely the recipient of special military training. Over the past couple months, I have been the recipient of visits by several animals. You have to understand I live in the city, not the inner city, but it is still the city. And in all my life, I have not experienced these kinds of creatures in my yard. First, there was a young male deer, which a couple weeks later became two young male deer with full antlers. They stood in the upper yard on their hind legs and placed their hooves on each other's shoulders, standing still in this A formation and turning their heads and looking at myself and my dog as we stood in shock. They were not sparring or playing. They just held that position for close to 10 minutes, and then they left. They have returned again once more. They're very large. On all fours, they're taller than I am, and they are beautiful and pristine and look very healthy and well. The other visits are that of a barred owl, that's B-A-R-R-E-D, barred, barred owl. He has visited every night the last few nights. Each night he appears two or three times, about two hours apart for each visitation, and very close to my bedroom window. But one time he came during the day and sat in the middle of the yard. And he's very large. And then after sitting there, my dog was barking wildly. He then flew away. And a couple minutes later, the deer arrived again. Those who research these types of experiences say they are common and that they are archetypes, that in a sense, they are a letter in the alphabet of the language the universe uses to inform us of how things work. And that comes from Gordon White. I think that's really beautiful. I like this explanation a lot, and it makes sense. As my feeling when I encounter them is a sense of safety and reassurance. They They restore my sense of awe and beauty in the world I live in. 
my sense in encountering the tendrils of facts spinning off of the central story and history of those in the indelible project is that it is and was an entangled narrative at cross purposes. The innocent kids who were recruited and used had ties to the military. The military and law enforcement took cues from the humanities and wove false narratives through drugs and terror using these kids to achieve an objective. The objective was merely one of greed and power, it seems. But the modern-day warriors of the 20th and 21st century involved in these efforts used the blood of the innocents to achieve their goals. They knew they were doing this. They knew what lines they were crossing. It was an archetypal line, and the deer and the owls remind me of this. Our world is so much more complicated than we know, and to not approach it with reverence and curiosity is to wear blinders that always result in disaster. You can't adopt the humanities or any of the arts, quote-unquote, through appropriation, especially if your goals are inauthentic. It may look like it's working, but it doesn't work. The killing and terrorizing of millions in war may look like it's working, but it isn't working. It creates a wave of counterpressure, as George Bataille described, that at some point will have an effect. War is one breath. Love is the other. Generating fear is merely a useless tool. It is a short-term tool, but the continued use of it strengthens the other. I think that is the message of the deer and their stance. Such a stance usually leads to sparring, but this time it did not. Instead, it was used for something else. It was a letter in a sentence. That was part of a larger meaning. Woven throughout the history of indelible are tendrils and ties with organized crime. For some reason, when I began this project, I did not anticipate this. My blinders. I have only come across signposts and not all the details of such engagements. But I know now organized crime is part of all aspects of war, of all wars, and of all financial foundations of war. And this makes sense. They are similar business models. This leads me to a personal story. I was just about to start on this personal story, and just as I did, you can probably hear my dog now in the background. Um, <laughs> a whole group of crows uh, landed on the roof, and now they're kind of dancing on the roof overhead here. 
Uh, so it's just driving my dog somewhat crazy. But I think I'm going to leave that in because I think it kind of fits with the story. So it's just before I start this little personal story. So I don't know. So here's the personal story. When I was about eight years old, it was a rare snowy day in Seattle. And we were home from school. My mom and her friend, our neighbor, who had three kids, took a sled and we all walked a mile to the grocery store. The idea was to carry the groceries on the sled. I walked behind and listened to the conversation between my mom and her friend. For some reason, they were talking about the mafia, likely because of some movie they had seen or some book they had read. I don't remember the details of the conversation. I just remember my thoughts in response to it. And I am grateful I overheard this conversation. The organized crime connection to the indelible story will be the door that remains shut. It ends the story. It is the last obstacle I anticipated that would end the project. It is a landscape that cannot be penetrated. Even if you did, the story found would never be told. And that's a fact. And that is where freedom ends. I am not sure of the archetype for such an ending, but I'm working on it. And that's all I have for tonight. Take care.